interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. Uh, thank you so much, Carl, and thank you all for coming. I, this is my first time at Cornell, and I'm really delighted to be here because uh, I have uh, some friends here that um, uh, have been in school here, are in school here now, and, uh, and then some new friends like Carl, and just the privilege to be with, um, to be with you and to think about uh, a subject that may... Uh, may sneak up on us, uh, kind of in a in a funny way, backwards, um, and uh, come come in the back door of our lives. A little different than you might expect. Expect. I'm not um, I'm not an academic, uh, despite the fact that I teach at an academic institution. That's not my background and not uh, where I come from. Um, and I am going to say some things tonight about ancient culture, but I'm not a, a, a I'm, I haven't got a PhD in ancient Greek culture or anything, but I do think some of the things that we're going to say are very, very applicable to uh, our culture today, and um, I would welcome your thoughts uh, how I could make this a better and more uh, focused uh, uh, approach to comparing, in essence, what we're going to do is compare the ancient culture of Greece in in which Paul, uh, ancient Greek culture in which the Apostle Paul uh, moved and operated, we're going to compare that with what he discovered about uh, what it meant to be a Christian and how the, that represented a, a very, very significant clash of cultures, how that got resolved, and what, the, in an essence, what it means for you and for me today, in some ways, in the most personal ways of our lives. Um, I did uh, have a difficult time getting here. Um, it it's, uh, I've seen a few airports in the last uh, 24, oh, actually more than that, 30, 36 hours. And uh, the airports uh, in, uh, in, in America are doing well. You'll be happy to know they're full of people, especially with all this snow. I did find something interesting in one of the brochures for Chesterton House, though, on the plane that uh, the Chesterton himself said, G.K. Chesterton, he said, an inconvenience is only an adventure wrongly considered. And I thought, boy, if I could just live that way, I'd be a happier man. You know, it, it, it is a little weird in these deals. You know, you wonder if you're going to get there. You sort of are, you know, spending a lot of time chewing your nails, wondering why you're sitting on the tarmac for two and a half hours, and then they bring you back to the gate. And But uh, Chesterton's words actually helped me, you know, it, uh, Inconvenience is only an adventure wrongly considered. So I tried to turn it into an adventure. <clears throat> I'm not sure I succeeded terribly well, but uh, at least I, um, at least I, you know, I didn't get angry at anybody, not once in 36 hours. That, now that's, I don't know how you do in situations like this, but that was good for me. I didn't get angry. Thank you. Yes. Um, <clears throat> all right. Here's where I want to begin. I want you to think not about ancient Greece yet, but I want you to think about right now, today, and what you know or what you think about the way in which Christians relate to a larger culture, right here in your university, perhaps. How is it that the church, or how is it that Christians as individuals, or in your fellowship groups, what is the reputation that you have on a campus like this? What is the reputation that Christians have in small towns and large cities all over our country, say? And I want to suggest to you that one of the reasons why we have a difficult time, um, as it were, making our message convincing, one of the reasons why I think Christianity is somewhat of a hard sell today, especially among people who are very thoughtful, is that we are perceived as being in a power game. And the minute I say that, most of you are going to say, what? I don't really think so, but actually, I want to help you see that this is the way we are perceived. It is no accident, and I trust I'm not going to offend anybody here by saying it this way, but it is no accident that that Christians are sometimes referred to as the Christian right. 
which has definitely got political overtones to the way it's said. We are perceived as going for political power. We are perceived as people who, if we can just get the right kind of person elected, then we will be able to make the culture what it was 50 years ago. That's actually what people think of us. And probably fewer uh, Christians than, um, than you might think are actually engaged in such political warfare. But that is the way we're perceived. We're perceived as grasping for power. Or in the church, the church is perceived as a place where there's a lot of people seeking power in order to control the ethical values of people. In other words, some of the values that you and I, uh, Christians generally might take for granted, are perceived by other people as being a, a function of a certain coercion. That Christians are actually coercing one another in the churches to hold to certain values, which in turn we're trying to uh, make uh, real for the rest of uh, the society. Another form of power, you might say, is that um, we are perceived as people who do not always handle the truth fairly. This is very unfortunate, but because of some charlatans, because of some people who are just out there doing very, very crazy things, and sometimes, unfortunately, they're in the public's eye or they're in the media, the way Christians are perceived is people who deal fast and loose with the truth, even factual truth. And an attempt there is to manipulate what people think or know. So whether we're talking about politics or ethics, or you might call it a kind of epistemological way of orienting your life, Christians are often perceived as people who are in it for a power game. And I want to suggest to you that that there may be some reasons for that that we need to pay attention to. I honestly believe that most every one of you in the room would say, that's, that's not me. That's not the Christian group I'm a part of. It's not my church. But actually, the very students and faculty on this campus perceive us, many of us, in just this way. And I think we can get some understanding of what's going on if we do contrast what was, what was happening in the life of the Apostle Paul in the first century with the surrounding classical Greek world in which he lived. So we're looking back, as it were, to a, a, a more or less a biblical uh, first century example in order to be able to see what it is for us today that we need to do and say and how we, in a sense, need to position ourselves. And the stakes are higher today in some ways because of the way in which media picks us up. I mean... I hesitate to use examples because I don't want to to be pointing the finger at any one person. But all of us, if you just think about it, can think of Christians on the media, in the media, who have said stupid things. And the stupid things that they are said are perceived as trying to obtain some sort of leverage or power over a situation in the ways that I've described. What kind of world was it that the Apostle Paul uh, did his thing in? What sort of world was it like? I want to suggest to you that it was a world where the powerful scorned the weakness of ordinary people. That it was a world where the intellect was actually seen as far superior to the emotions or to the feelings And that if you were going to be a success in this world, if you were going to be a person of stature or perceived as a person who was a leader, you would never lead with your gut. You would always lead with your intellect. For only the pristine intellectual sort of truth, as whatever that might be perceived as, was an acceptable form of dialogue among among the elites of Greek classical culture. Plato, who admittedly, of course, lived many years before Christ, but nonetheless had tremendous influence on what I'm just saying here, put it this way. He said, since the gods did not want to pollute the divine element in man with mortal feelings, 
they located the mortal element in a separate part of the body. The mortal element they secured in the breast or the trunk of the person. And the, the, the divine element was seen as being in the head. And the appetites, the base appetites, were located in the belly as far as possible from the seat of deliberation. The bowels, Plato said, are in coils, thus preventing the quick passage of food, which otherwise would make the appetite insatiable, so rendering our species incapable of philosophy and culture because of gluttony. Do you see what he's saying? Man is three parts, or basically two. One is the good part. That's the intellectual part. That's the rational part. And the rest of man is dubious, especially the belly, the appetites, the coils, as he called them, where these base appetites would exist. Below the neck, if you live there, you're going to get into trouble. The passions and the appetites are not the ways in which you can be led as a person in the way in which you want to exhibit yourself in culture. Think of what a a good running back does. I don't know if there's any football running backs in the room, but a, a football running back just charges forward and does not care what he runs into. And he goes hard and fast and just rolls over anything that he comes in contact with. In other words, he doesn't listen to the commands of reason. (laughs) Because reason would tell you, don't do that. It will hurt. But he, in a Greek kind of way, is living in a more base way. And I don't mean to say anything about football. I love football. But he's living in a kind of base way where just his physical body is at work and the, the arguments of reason are not... Uh, listen to at all. The intelligent person is after the really important things. She doesn't uh, bother with everyday stuff. Uh, This person has to look beyond the particulars of everyday everyday life, the emotions that will distract you and the appetites that uh, are characteristic of the lower nature. Instead, we have to look at the universals, the large and grand thoughts and themes which govern everything else. This is the way Greek society was run. The net effect was to downplay everyday, ordinary experience. The classical person saw the particulars of life as tawdry, inconsequential, silly, weak. But the universals were intelligent, meaningful, powerful. And the people who lived in that realm, the realm of reason, the realm of the intelligent, these were the people who were the leaders of society. And they were the ones to be emulated and admired. In the classical world, there was a huge emphasis upon rank, much more so than we would place on it today. Society was very, very hierarchical. Rank is what you were born into. Your legal identity was what determined your rank. It was a kind of legal condition in which you found yourself, and it could only be changed by legal means, by marriage, or by adoption, or by decree. There's very strange passages in ancient Greek literature about a 30-year-old man who will adopt a 50-year-old man as his son. And these are people of great rank that are doing this. Why? Well, because... What is going on is that the 30-year-old man, he has need of money. The 50-year-old man, he has money. But the 30-year-old has a higher rank. And so they do a deal. They kind of do it very quietly, you know. um, uh, Maybe after they play golf or something, they sit around and they talk this deal through uh, a lot. and, And they finally determine that the younger man will adopt the older man and thereby give his rank to the older man, and the older man, quietly, someone under the table, will give some money which the younger man needs. This is how important rank was. 
in that world. There are long lists of ways in which a man is to maintain his rank in ancient Greece, to do what is expected, to maintain his place in society, to use rank as his power, to never, never appear weak. You would never appear weak. That would be the death of you. One ancient writer said that the ideal man uh, lives, and I'm sorry about the man part, but that's the way they talked, lives as he wills, who is subject neither to compulsion nor hindrance nor force, whose choices are unhampered, whose desires achieve their ends. There's a kind of elegance to this sort of person. Very elitist. Very perceived as, very much perceived as rational. On top of things. In control. Never flustered. Reason is a fortress for this kind of individual. Impervious to the assaults of emotion. And he has to conduct himself <clears throat> in society as someone who is balanced. Somewhat regal who has it all together. If you act with too much sympathy and emotion, your friends will say, what on earth is going on? He has lost the plot. He doesn't get it anymore. There's one example from Plutarch, who is a contemporary of the Apostle Paul's. He writes a letter to his wife on the occasion of the death of their child. And this is what he says. It was just a child Get over it. There are more important things in this world, especially my reputation as a man. Your excessive grieving brings me into ill repute. So, woman, go off. Grieve quietly if you must. But make sure my position is maintained. This is the world in which the Apostle Paul writes to the Christians of Corinth, a world which acknowledges no frailty, no weakness, no misgiving, no doubt among the leaders, that is. They were to be strong. You were to be bold and out front with your position of power and yet to do it in an understated and very dignified way. This is what the context was where the Apostle Paul said these words. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is lowly and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Paul's understanding, not only of the world, not only of the gospel itself, but of his own life, takes a dramatic turn in the middle years of his life. And he sees himself in a completely different way than Plato or the classic, classical world. Paul believes Paul believes fundamentally this, and it changes everything for him, that God put on eyebrows. God put on kneecaps. And amazingly enough, God put on a stomach. And God entered into this world and yet remained uncontaminated and unpolluted by the worst of it. And he didn't just pay a visit he didn't just put on a mask as if he were portraying himself as a sympathetic human being for a time. No, he actively became human with all of its limitations, with all of our weaknesses in one huge gesture, Jesus smashes the classical ideal. All of a sudden, in fact, the world is topsy-turvy. What was in classical culture wise and strong is now understood by Christ himself to be foolish and without power. And what was folly and weakness is now given wisdom 
and strength. I don't think we can overstate the dramatic change in the mentality that this idea brought. Some of us in the room lived through the late 60s as young people, high school uh, kids or younger or maybe college students. It was before most of you, of course, were born. But when I think back about those years and what I know of them personally and from people I know, there was such an enormous cultural change within four or five years. It was completely and radically a different world by 1971 than it was in 1966. Very, very different. I'll give you one example. It has to do with Harvard. When I was a freshman at Harvard, and this is just confirm all your bad views about Harvard, but when I was a freshman, the hours that, that guys were allowed to have young women in our rooms was five to seven on weekday nights with the door open and proctors walking up and down the hallways. By the time I graduated, five to seven on weekday nights, that was it. When I graduated four years later, there were no parietal hours whatsoever. And indeed, young women, quite a number actually, moved in to their boyfriend's room on Thursday night and stayed until Sunday night. And nobody, nobody thought a thing of it. Now, I don't say that to, in a sense, my point is not to make a value judgment about that, right, one way or the other. My point is to tell you how much culture changed and to tell you that cultures do change. They change radically. They do change when people take a position and act out of conviction, and they do so in the right sort of way, in the right sort of network and communities. Cultures actually change. And the world of the first century actually changed. Admittedly, it took several centuries for that change to dig its roots down deeply into the culture of the ancient world. But that was initiated by Jesus, who turned topsy-turvy the way people thought about strength and weakness, about wisdom and foolishness. God, you see, chose foolishness for himself. That's, that's unthinkable if you were a Greek. By putting the base and the material on himself in the form of flesh, he became a man. And yet this man, who was yet God, died. In fact, he was crucified, a gruesome death. And Paul now understands his life not in terms of his Jewish, Greek, or Roman status or rank. He actually had rank or status in all three of those cultures. But he no longer understood himself that way. Instead, he understands himself in terms of a little phrase that he uses over and over again in his writings. Two words. In Christ. He didn't really use the word Christian, hardly at all. For Paul, the way in which you spoke about a person who was a follower of Christ was not to say they were a Christian. You would say they are in Christ. I would encourage you, some of you who are Bible readers, and I think there's probably a lot of them here, if you would go through your Bible, the writings of the Apostle Paul, and take a pencil and circle every time you see the preposition in, with, or through. I call that Paul's theology of prepositions because it is the way in which the Apostle Paul speaks of his life. He lives his life knowing that Christ is with him, that Christ is in him, that Christ lives his life through him. And conversely, he knows that he lives his life with Christ, in Christ and through Christ. And in those prepositions, I want to propose to you, there is a cultural revolution, the magnitude of which we continue to live out today. Paul knows that when he was knocked off that horse on his way to Damascus, he was being knocked out of a classical way of seeing himself. 
and he was being put into Christ and seeing himself as belonging to Christ. That became his essential identification. Please remember that for something I'm going to say in a few minutes. The essential identification Paul had of himself was that he was in Christ. So he could easily say, I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a scholar. I was a person of significant rank. But I no longer count those things as significant for the shaping of my identity. Instead, he says, I see my identity as one who shares in the power of the resurrection of Christ and in the fellowship of his sufferings in again. Paul actually saw himself as somehow in Christ as he was being crucified. In Christ as he was being raised. His identity was so closely related to the identity of who Jesus was in the world, that everything for Paul turned upside down. You and I both know that cultural revolutions, political revolutions, economic revolutions, cultural revolutions, they take place at the core because there are people who believe deeply, deeply, that what they advocate is the truth. And I think it is because of Paul's grasp of the absolutely revolutionary nature of the cultural turn that was taken by Jesus Christ in his incarnation that Paul can say the world is a completely different place because of it. No one in the classical world, regardless of rank, would ever ever explain themselves as weak. You just wouldn't go there. You just wouldn't say it. But for Paul, this becomes not only the very pattern of his life, but the very pride of his life. Yes, pride. Paul actually begins to speak in language that tells us he is proud of the fact that the world perceives him and his message and even his master, as weak. Do you see how contrary this was to the world in which Paul lived? One way in which Paul did this, in which he demonstrated uh, who he was in the face of the classical world was to do something that no one in the classical world of any rank would ever do. He worked with his hands. Paul, as you know, was a maker of tents. But he didn't do that, as we often suspect, just in order not to be a financial burden to the churches. He did. But he did it also to make a point. He works on the wrong side of town with the wrong sort of people. Paul, who by all accounts has to be seen as an educated, brilliant, skilled man who could have made it as a sophist intellectual at Cornell University. He now deliberately chooses to ignore his own rank. And he says instead, I have become all things to all people as Jesus did. <clears throat> and for the sake of Christ's body, the church, Paul identifies with the carpenter who also worked with his hands, who died, in fact, with his hands outstretched apparently as the weakest of men. And there again, you see something that I do think you probably already know, and that is that the cross was a despicable, uh, despicable symbol of weakness. It was not an ornament. It was not a piece of jewelry. It was a despicable sign of weakness. And the pattern, therefore, that Paul is after is living in Christ, with Christ, through Christ, so that he is completely identified with Christ in order that the weakness of Christ and his cross in the world actually becomes that with which Paul is himself identified. In other words, 
If you are a Christian believer in here tonight, then I presume that you understand that Jesus died for you. But I wonder if you know that you died with Jesus. Do you see, being a follower of Christ is not merely a matter of what Jesus did for us. It is a matter of what he is doing in us. And until we get that right, we will always think of the Christian faith as a kind of simple transaction. I was a sinner. I gave my sin to Jesus, and he gave me his righteousness. I gave him my sin, and he died for it. He gives me his righteousness, and I get to live because of it. True, absolutely true. Can't take that away. Don't want to. But that is not all. It's not merely an exchange. It is a matter of identification. The Christian is someone who realizes, again, if I may say it, not just that Jesus does something for him, but that Jesus does something in him. And that, that is what changes our identity. To know that our very lives are being transformed by the one who is at work within us even to this moment. The cross does not fit into Paul's world. And it doesn't fit into ours either. It doesn't fit into a world where you actually, in some way, become proud of your weaknesses. How could that be? It doesn't fit into a world where you begin to identify with the weakness of Christ. You see the weakness of Christ as the center point of your identity? Really? And he does this in such a way that the Apostle Paul can say, when Christ died... I died. I was with him when he died. Now, there is great mystery there. I am not talking about something that is easily grasped or understood with our left brains. <laughs> this is something that you engineers need to sort of go over and ask your friends who are studying you know, English literature a little bit about. It's something that actually does rightly involve our imagination. What does that mean? What does that mean that not only did Christ die for me, but... But I died with Christ. What, what can that mean? Whatever else it means, it, it, it is this, that there is such an identification of my life as a follower of Christ with his that I simply must speak of myself as being in such, such immediate, visceral union with him. That I become what he intends in this world today. That is why the church is called the body of Christ. Is that a metaphor? It may seem like a metaphor. I mean, Paul uses it as a metaphor. And certain parts of the body are eyes. Certain parts of the bodies are hands and so forth. You perhaps know his discussion there. But I really want to suggest to you that when we get down to it, the body is not a metaphor. It's a reality. We are the extension of the incarnation of Jesus in this world. We speak of missions, don't we? As we're gonna, some of us, you know, we hear an announcement about a missions trip and we get excited about that and we be concerned about what is rightly so, concerned about what's going on in Haiti. And sometimes we speak of, uh, of our taking Christ to the world. My friends, we do not take Christ to the world. Christ takes us to the world. And therein, just in those few words, that little twist is a huge body of thought that changes everything. Everything gets topsy-turvy. You know, uh, the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, where, uh, where Jesus says, go into all the world, baptizing, discipling, teaching, we emphasize that one a lot, and it's good that we do. But do you know that for every time Jesus said go, he said follow me three times. And really our lives are one of following, not going for Jesus. 
going for Jesus is a very American idea, believe me. It's what proud Americans, capable Americans do. But it, is, it, it speaks of a kind of way we see ourselves as triumphant in Christ, as powerful in Christ. And yes, indeed, there is another side to the story. There is indeed the power of the resurrection. But the power of the resurrection only accompanies the weakness of the cross. And yet so often we seem to divide those two and want one without the other. To die to my own sense of my glittering image that I might identify with Jesus on the cross where his image was marred beyond rejection because of Christ Paul is simply upending the world ancient and modern and we're so used to the flow of his words perhaps that we don't realize how incredibly radical they are he's pleading that we rethink every conceivable thing in our lives, especially every relationship with this idea of being weak in Christ. And Paul understands, he really does, that there's only so much you can say about this. And I've tried to say it, but in the end, you have to see it. You have to see it. What does it mean for you to say that you are weak like Jesus. What does that mean? If for the Apostle Paul, it became the way in which he leveraged the gospel of Christ to the world of his time. In other words, that's the way he went into the world. Not as, not as the triumphant person with an answer but as one who came in weakness. His message was strong, no doubt about it. When Paul would stand up and preach, it was a very, very strong message. But the manner, the person, the tone, the environment, the clothing, everything about him said something else. What does that mean for you? What does that mean for me? For me, it has meant, among other things, that in the last few years, I have faced some things in myself that I never wanted to face as a person. You know that degree you're going to get from this institution? It's really going to get a lot of doors open for you, isn't it? It is. And that's what I thought, too. And I kind of lived my life on the level of accomplishment and achievement, albeit in a Christian world, yes, But for various reasons that I won't take time to explain now, but I can and would be happy to, actually, uh, in another setting, another time this weekend, I became addicted to pain medication. How did that happen? Well, I've thought about it for several years now, and I think I have some ideas about how it happened. Yeah, I was in pain, but... There was more to it than that. Do you know what addiction is? Addiction is a mental compulsion that issues in an overwhelming physiological demand. A mental compulsion that issues in an overwhelming physical demand. There are basically two kinds of addictions. One is substance addiction and one is process addiction. Substances drugs, alcohol, so forth. A process addiction is something you do. It's compulsive sexual behavior. It's pornography. It's an eating disorder. Although eating disorders are very, very complex because they involve a substance too, a substance that you cannot stop using. It's estimated on a typical Sunday morning congregation in America that four out of ten people in church that morning struggle with some kind of addictive substance or process in their lives. 
and many more who don't have a flat-out hard-driving addiction have kind of secondary or minor addictions, we would call them, like going home at night and flopping on the couch and watching three hours of television just to kind of numb out. Now, why do I tell you this? Do you remember what I said a few moments ago about Paul's identity becoming that of Christ? There's almost no other way to say it. In Christ, with Christ, through Christ. He lives his life conscious that Christ is in him. That's his identity. Do you know what an addict's identity is? An addict defines life in such a way that they cannot imagine a future without their substance or process. And then what becomes their identity? What becomes their identity is that substance or that process. Do you know, I'm being very honest and candid with you, do you know what got me, stopped me like on a dime a few years ago and made me say, this must end? It was a, a man um, who was about this tall and about as wide. And he was a counselor, but he wasn't a very spiritual person at all. And we were in a kind of a conference thing together and he said to me, um, yeah, you're a, you're a Presbyterian minister, aren't you? And I said, yeah. And he said, uh, who's your God? I said, well, my God is um, the um, biblical, I'm, I'm a Christian, I believe in the, the biblical triune God. He said, oh, no, that's not your God. Your God is drugs. To this day, I don't know how he knew. I, I think he was a counselor. I think he knew what he was doing. I think he saw some things in my life in just a, a relatively short period of time that most people would never see. The reason his words stabbed me to the heart was because he was saying what my identity was. Do you understand how deeply radical, new, different it is for you to say, I am in Christ and that is my identity. Ironically, and this really is the reason I bring this up about addiction at all, ironically, addictions cannot be overcome by strength or willpower, ever. The worst thing you can say to a person who drinks too much is stop drinking. It's hurting you. It's killing you. The worst thing you can say to a roommate or a friend who's using drugs is to say, stop using that stuff. It's going to kill you. You're right. But no amount of willpower and no amount of strength will do it. Do you know what begins to do it? Is when the addict admits that he or she can't stop, can't do it, is unable to change their lives. And out of that inability and that weakness, perhaps begins to flow a strength that they never knew before. And for the Christian, and oh yes, there are many Christians who are addicts of one kind or another, many for the Christian, the strength that comes in weakness is what? It's not a what. It's him. He is my strength. He is my life. One of the problems, my dear friends, with the Christian church today, and one of the reasons why so many of us have such a hard time 
sharing our faith with our neighbors, our friends, our roommates, our the people in our fraternities or sororities or clubs is that Christians have a way of saying the most wonderful and lofty things but somehow with a sense that they don't really believe them. Do you know that? Beautiful things come out of our mouths. But often the person we're talking to isn't quite sure we really believe it. Look, I'm beginning to learn, and I want you to begin to learn, that the best thing you can do is not to go for power in this culture. It's not to try and get the right guy elected. It's not to try and change the laws. That has been tried again and again and again in my lifetime. And it has failed every time. No, the right way to begin to change a culture is not with power. It's with weakness. It's with your weakness. So as you approach a friend or a colleague or a classmate and you come at them not as triumphalistic, not as you have it all together, but as a person who's a human being who knows another human being who happened to be God and who came because of your weakness. I got a birthday card. Um, I got to end this. I got a birthday card um, not, oh, a few years ago. And um, it, it had this really flowery thing on front. And it said, Dear Pastor, please do not buy your pastor's flowery things with says Dear Pastor on it. I mean, the minute I saw that, I knew I, knew I was not going to like this, right? Any of you are pastors in the room, you know what I mean. I opened it up, and here's what it said. It said, with each passing year, may you learn to live more in your achievements than in your limitations. I, I read that a second time. And, you know, I'm a pretty smart guy, but I read it a third time. Because it just wasn't right. Hallmark got it way, way wrong. I am learning that to go for power or to go for control, and I'm going to actually talk more about power and control tomorrow, and I know a lot of you aren't going to be there, but um, I'm going to talk about why I seek to control things in my own life and in my world. I'm learning that wherever I go for the power, there, in fact, I fail. And then what I really need to learn is to be anti-heroic. Anti-heroic. Not a big hero. Certainly not a Christian hero. It's a contradiction in terms. Christian hero. In an age that prizes the hero, the powerful, the in-control person, I need to learn to be anti-heroic. Remember Lord of the Rings? When Frodo took to himself the ring's power, whenever he did that, he turned to the dark side, didn't he? And only by seeing his powerlessness could Frodo get the help he needed to finish his task, his anti-quest. You see, the Christian life is completely counterintuitive. Completely. It's not simply that Paul talks about things in pairs like weakness and strength and poverty and riches and foolishness and wisdom and suffering and joy. No, it's more than that. It's counterintuitive. It's strength in weakness, riches in poverty, wisdom in foolishness, joy in suffering. And the reason is because at the place of my weakness, I can begin to know Christ's strength. Not at the place of my strength. I do not know Christ at the place of my strength. Mother Teresa said, among many other wise things, you'll never know that Jesus is all you need 
until Jesus is all you got. And for many of us, it takes a crash of some kind in our lives to really realize that Jesus is all we got. But when we do, we learn not to try and escape our weaknesses, our failures, our limitations. We see them as a sign of the power and the glory of Christ raised. As a sign. That is to say, the visible presence of Christ, who for a time is invisible. Do you know what St. Augustine called Christians? Little Christs. First time I read that, I said, whoa, I can't go there. But I thought about it. We actually become those who are the visible presence of Jesus. Someone once said, didn't they? You probably heard this. That you might be all of Jesus that someone ever sees or knows or talks to. You're a sign. You're a sign of Christ. Who is invisible for a time, but you're visible. You're really a sacrament. You know, in the church, that's the way we define a sacrament. Is a visible and outward symbol of an inward and invisible reality. You're a sacrament of Christ's presence. You make Christ real to a world that is going to doubt you from the get-go and only be convinced not by your powerfulness but by your weakness in identification with Christ. Carl, forgive me for going too long, but um, that's about all I'm going to say tonight about that.